Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self abandon. The amazing spider talk. The amazing spider talk. Come swing through the air, sit back and prepare for the amazing. Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com. And I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Thanks for joining us for Episode 8 of the second season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yes, Dan, and in this second season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk, you and I have been taking a look at how Spider-Man hit the big time during the Stan Lee and John Romita Sr. run on the title. In this episode, we'll be talking about the history of the comic book code and what it meant for Stan Lee when he rebuked their authority and released the issues of Spider-Man without the comic code's approval. Awesome, Mark. Well, before we even get started, I I wanted to remind everybody that this episode wouldn't be possible without support from our wonderful Patreon subscribers – whose patronage allows us to assemble the guests we have on the show and do all of our research. So if you enjoy the show and want to help us continue while getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, be sure to go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. Yeah, and this week we want to thank our new Patreon subscribers who made this particular episode possible. Thanks to the following Spider fans for joining our team. The first off being Jonathan Osborne. Ooh, that's a that's a scary last name, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> We've also got Jeremy Bong, maybe scary in a different way. <laughs> Especially talking about these issues we're about to talk about. Yes. Uh, next up is probably going to be a name I butcher in my own special way. It's Steve Barkema. Is that related to Busima or Buscemi? Oh, there you go. Well, anyway, uh, we've also got Jason Alvarado. And then this last one, I'm going to guess this is an alias, is Moncton Spidey. Yeah, he's a cosplayer. Okay, very cool. Well, well, welcome aboard. Well, welcome, everybody. Thanks again for joining our amazing Patreon team. Well, like many of the issues that we've been talking about this season, Amazing Spider-Man numbers 96 to 98 that we're going to be talking about today can be found in your local comic shops on Marvel Unlimited and on Comixology. So basically, anywhere you can find comics, you can find these magazines. So we hope you enjoy our newest episode entitled, Rejecting the Comic Book Code.
I got a letter once from the um, Office of Health, Education, and Welfare in Washington. Mm -hmm. And they said, um, Mr. Lee, uh, recognizing the influence of your comics, blah, 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 and drugs are a big problem. If you could do an anti-drug anti story, sorry. we'd appreciate it. Well, who am I not to obey the edict of H-E-W? Right. So I did a three-issue uh, series, and it wasn't preachy, but it had to do with a friend of Spidey's, I forget who it was, had taken too much of something. I don't know anything about drugs. so I, right. I just said he, took, he, he overdosed on something. Right. And he was on the edge of the roof and thought he could fly, and Spider-Man rescues him and says, you, you're a jerk for doing that, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And it was part of a bigger story with a villain and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it didn't look like we were preaching. It was just an incident in a story. Mm -hmm. We then had the Comic Code Administration mm -hmm. where they were censoring all the comics. They sent the book back and said, you can't publish this book. I said, we won't put our seal of approval on it. I said, why not? They said, well, you're mentioning drugs. I said, we're not telling kids to take drugs. Right, and I said, I, I was asked to do this by a branch of the federal government. Right. Sorry, you can't do it. Well, it's one time when I was very proud of my publisher. I said, Martin, you know, I want to put these books out anyway. And he said, well, go ahead and do it, Stan. Mm -hmm. And we put them out without the seal. They sold beautifully. We got letters from church groups, parent teachers. And so everybody loved it. Right. And a funny thing happened there, too. The New York Times gave it a good write-up. Now, as you probably know, when the New York Times has a feature story, other papers around the country pick usually up on it, pick sure. up on it. Well, I, I would get clippings from the other papers, but what they would do, so often they would headline their story something like, um, Marvel Comics Drug Issue Causes Controversy. <laughs> right. And in looking at the headline, you would think that we, we were pushing Pro drugs. drugs you know? right. So I learned that there's no good you can do that doesn't turn into something you're embarrassed by later. All right, Dan. Well, before we get into the thick of things with Amazing Spider-Man numbers 96 to 98 and, and Stan Lee rebuking the comic code, we thought uh, it might be worthwhile to go on a little history lesson here. That's right. Here's Professor Mark and Dan ready to tell you all about what is the comic book code. Oh boy, I can't wait to find out, Mark. I know. <laughs> don't, don't, don't sound too excited, Dan. All right, no, uh, no, this is really interesting history. And, and, and for the record, too, uh, just because I'm ob obliged to plug myself at all times, you can, you can get a little rundown of all this stuff in my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. There's an entire chapter dedicated to this. Uh, not that we base our podcast shows around chapters in my book, Dan. That would be silly. I just want to say, everybody, even when we're not recording, every five minutes in conversation, Mark brings up his book. It's the one thing I got, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mark, why don't you tell us about uh, this section that is of discussion that's definitely not from your book. Yeah, right. <laughs> if we're going to talk about what the comic book code is, we got to start back in the uh, early 1950s with a man named Frederick Wortham, who was uh, a German-American psychiatrist uh, and doctor who wrote a book called Seduction of the Innocent. Uh, I just want to say, if you're, if you're a doctor writing a book, a, especially a German-American doctor writing a book called Seduction of the Innocent, maybe we shouldn't be listening to you. That's right. Well, no one who speaks German could possibly be evil, Dan. <laughs> um, Simpson quote. Anyway, 
So in this uh, this book, the general thrust of it was that um, Dr. Wortham here thought that there was a lot of corrupt and immoral behavior found in comic books. And Wortham became basically a crusader against what was viewed as this immoral activity, mainly things like sex and the occult and, um, you know, just bad influences all around. I, I don't think books like Superman or Batman were, were the subject, although there was some Batman and Robin stuff in the 50s that was a little strange. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, there's nothing uh, wrong with that. Uh, but I think this is more so like the monster mags and kind of like the pulp, pulp magazines of that era uh, where a lot of this stuff that Wortham found objectionable was found. You know, Wortham's crusade ended up actually resulting in a congressional inquiry into, you know, into comic books. I mean, so this reached all the way up to the federal level. I mean, you know, before they were constantly trying to repeal your health care, they talked about comic books in Washington, D.C. So uh, we have a clip from the Senate hearings here to give you a, a taste of um, what those sounded like. I bet this was really exciting. It is my opinion without any reasonable doubt and without any reservation that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. Two decades ago, my late father was instrumental in starting the comic magazine industry. He edited the first few issues of the first modern comic magazine, Famous Funnies. Famous what? Funnies. I was the first publisher in these United States to publish horror comics. I'm responsible. I started them. Some may not like them. That's a matter of personal taste. It would be just as difficult to explain the harmless thrill of a horror story to a Dr. Wortham as it would be to explain the sublimity of love to a frigid old maid. What are we afraid of? Are we afraid of our own children? Do we forget that they are citizens too? and entitled to the essential freedom to read? Or do we think our children so evil, so vicious, so simple-minded, that it takes but a comic magazine story of murder to set them to murder, of robbery to set them to robbery? Mark, these hearings really remind me of, um, you know, like how people talk about video games these days. Whether you find that valid, uh, you know, criticism of video games valid or not, it it seems like whatever kids are into is always going to be a target for someone trying to convince us that they are the ills that, uh, like, turn kids mad, if you will. Right, right. Always, always got to scapegoat something. Can never be deep, deep-seated issues in society. Anyway, so as a result of these inquiries and hearings, in 1954, the Comic Code Authority, also known as the CCA, uh, was founded. And basically, the CCA uh, oversaw... Uh, the comic book industry, and that they ma- mandated that comics needed a seal of approval, quote unquote. And to achieve that, comics needed to basically eliminate all references to drugs, gore, sex, and my favorite, the occult. Probably when we're talking about mainstream comics, like the stuff that DC and Marvel was pumping out, uh, or Marvel's predecessor, probably the most, the topic most impacted by these mandate was the occult, because you know Marvel especially was pumping out these like monster magazines with. Uh, vampires and werewolves and and creatures of the night and that was considered uh no bueno under the new cca 
they were um, so that 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 caused a major shift in in how uh, especially Marvel uh, did their comics and in many ways probably led to the creation of the superhero line of comics because they needed to kind of come up with the next big thing. And, you know, there were consequences if the comics didn't get the seal of approval. Um, basically, the, the, the main thing is if it didn't get the seal, um, it basically was kind of like a black mark or red flag that was sent out to um, the distributors or the vendors who sold the comics on the spinner racks and what have you. And, you know, if something was viewed questionable, the, the vendor would have the right to refuse to sell the comic. Like, it was still their choice, I guess. But, you know, basically, if they got the, the list of what was shipping out that month and they saw that something did not have the seal of approval, in all likelihood, they wouldn't carry it. So if you were one of the big two and you didn't get the seal of approval on your comic, that meant that you, you had a major title that likely wouldn't be sold in stores. It's like getting an NC-17 rating on a movie today. A lot of venues won't carry that kind of movie. And, and even um, with Saga recently, there was something like this, right? Yeah, I think that was, it was in the iTunes store or, I, or iBooks, whatever, one of the Apple stores, where you know Saga obviously has very um, edgy artwork, especially in edgy themes. And I think there was one of, one of, the, one of uh, Fiona Staples' Uh, creations on a cover that was viewed, um, I, I guess, sexually explicit, and and Apple refused to carry the title. And I mean, that's a major digital distribution center for for comics. So I, I would imagine that sales for that issue uh, were greatly impacted by the fact that they weren't carried on Apple. I mean, just because they were still sold in stores or Comixology doesn't mean that that still didn't take a chunk of sales out. And you guys have all seen, you know, if you're a collector of comics from the 60s and, and earlier, well, mainly, you know, like, like late 50s, you've seen the, the CCA stamp, right? It looks like an A with like, I, I don't know, like uh, like a bunch of like motion lines coming off of it, but it's kind of a clever blurring of the C, C, and A, and it's like a literal stamp, like a mailing stamp of postage was put on the front of the comic. Yeah, I mean, if if you look, like you said, if you look at any cover of a comic from the '60s, you can you can find it pretty easily. I mean, it's it's not it's not the you know issue designator in the top left corner, but it, I think it's usually I think like the bottom right or the bottom left they pop it in, or sometimes the top right too. I think it, it's it's it, you can find it. Like yeah. you said, it, it looks like a stamp. I mean, it's an illustration of a stamp. With all that in mind, you know, Stanley, whatever you think of him unquestionably ever the trailblazer in terms of the comic book industry. You know, we already in a previous episode this season, Dan, you and I talked about how amazing Spider-Man, but comics in general were becoming more um, socially conscious during this era uh, in terms of addressing issues of political issues or racial issues. Don't let the internet hear that Mark. They don't want to know that comics have been political for years. Oh, I know (laughs) it's all those SJWs, Dan changing everything. So, yeah, Stanley, the original SJW, in 1971, he received a letter from the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, basically imploring Marvel to leverage its influence on teenagers uh, and to produce an anti-drug story. Do we need to spell out for everybody just, like, why this was so? I mean, it's the late 60s, early 70s. Everybody knows the context of this, Yeah. Yeah, just just watch a documentary on Woodstock. 
Let's just say there was a lot of drugs going on in America, especially in the late 60s, early 70s. A lot of psychedelic drugs, obviously marijuana, but but other stuff. So, um, you know, the obviously the federal government, you know, one, you know, that once spurred comic books for being, you know, trashy kid books now finally came back to the comic book industry and said, you have an influence you need. Can you use it? And Stanley met with John Romita, who, you know, is his trusted second. And they talked about it. You know, first they talked about it in terms of, well, what kind of story would we do? Uh, and they were both in agreement that whatever they did shouldn't shouldn't like disrupt the flow of the comic itself. Like it shouldn't be like a standalone PSA Allah, and I always make fun of this one, but it's a good example. You know, the Spider-Man Power Pack uh, <laughs> special <laughs> from the 80s about child molestation. Uh, rather, they just wanted whatever they did, it needed to kind of work in the flow of the story of Spider-Man. Um, I just want to be clear that we're not laughing about child molestation. No. No, um, we're laughing about how child molestation is handled within the pages of a Spider-Man comic. Yes, exactly. And the fact that it's this PSA that tries to present itself as being in continuity, but everyone knows it's not. We're going to do this in the story. We're going to do, we're not going to be preachy about it was kind of the other thing. Like they didn't want like characters to kind of just break off and be like, don't do drugs. Drugs are bad. Uh, you know, it, it needed to read like a comic book, like a superhero comic book. So um, that was the first thing they discussed. But then the other thing they discussed was, of course, well, what is the comic code authority going to do? Uh, because, you know, while they were starting to kind of lax the rules a little bit in terms of certain depictions of things, more so, again, like on like like the occult and the monster side, um, they had not fully relinquished their control over the comics and drugs were still a no, no. Like you could not reference drug use of any kind in a comic book unless you were going to bypass the seal of approval. They went back and forth about this. Stan and John basically said, no, let, let's, let's do it. We're going to make it part of the story. It won't be preachy. And, of course, as they feared or predicted, the CCA did not put its stamp on uh, seal of approval on these issues. And thus, Amazing Spider-Man numbers 96 through 98, this three-part story involving... Uh, Harry Osborn and the Green Goblin and, and Peter and Spider-Man that contains some use, you know, references to drug use. Uh, they are three issues. They are the first three issues of Spider-Man not to have the seal of approval on it, uh, thus making them, if, you, if you're into the whole collecting thing, this kind of inflates their value a little bit. I know that certainly from like the, this run of issues... Um, these cost me a little more than, say, Amazing Spider-Man 95 or 99, right, Dan? Yeah, you'll often see them with, like, I don't know, it's like marker on the plastic where it's like, no stamp, no stamp. You know, uh, if anybody knows anything about these issues, and there's certainly other important stuff going on in these issues, it, it, it's that that they're kind of known for. And, you know, for good reason. I mean, you said the drug story is small. I actually think you know, of the two stories presented here, the drugs and the Green Goblin story, the drug one is actually, to me, the more interesting one. Oh, I, and, and we'll get into that when we talk about the story itself, but I just mean, like, I think at the end of the day, this is a Spider-Man comic that addresses drug use. It's not a 
you know, a drug PSA that happens to be a Spider-Man comic. I yeah. think that's which I think is what makes these comics great from a larger level. It's that, that they pulled this off in a way that I don't feel disrupts the flow of the story, which I think is important. But, um, but nevertheless, it got mainstream coverage. It got picked up in the New York Times. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, like, you know, at this point in time, you know, I know every time it seems like Marvel introduces a new hero or kills somebody off or whatever, there's a story in the Times of the USA Today or on CNN or whatever. Um, but, you know, at this day and age, comic books were not covered by the mainstream media. Um, you know, when I was just as a kind of anecdotal aside, when I was researching my book, plug, 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 um, you know, I was searching through the archives of the New York Times just to kind of try and find early interviews with like Stanley or, or Dicko or Ramita or anyone like that and didn't find much until February 4th, 1971, uh, which is certainly the first time I think Stan Lee is quoted in the New York Times for my searching. Uh, and they published an article on this date, a comics magazine defies code ban on drug stories. And uh, this article basically lays it all out, more or less the story that we just said. And, you know, kind of frames Stan Lee as this this rebel, uh, which, you know, I think we would all kind of chortle at now <laughs> in terms of, <laughs> you know, Stan the rebel. And, and, and you know, Stan, Stan comes across, tr- you know, true to that cause here. Like there's one quote from him. We can't keep our heads in the sand, Mr. Lee said, because it's the Times, So you're always Mr. or Mrs. or Miss in the Times. Um I said that if this story would help one kid anywhere in the world not to try drugs or lay off drugs one day earlier, then it's worth it rather than waiting for the code authority to give permission. So, I mean, you know, talk about talk about framing an argument and winning the PR war here. Here is Stan Lee, the you know, editor of Marvel Comics, basically going up there saying, I'm I'm doing the right thing for society. I don't care what some stupid comic code authority says and you know we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit after we discuss the issues but the the upshot of this thing is basically by pushing ahead with this and getting this attention that they did stan and marvel successfully destroyed the cca and and you know they they more or less became completely neutered uh in terms of their authority over what comics can say or do so these are significant issues, Dan. <laughs> yeah, not – I mean like they, they didn't just change Spider-Man. They changed like comics as a medium you know, in general. Not to say that all comics were adhering to this at the time, but you know, it was a form of censorship. You know? It was preventing stories from being told, which I feel like is never good for any kind of art form. And uh, you know, I think – you know, we're going to talk about Spider-Man and what happens to him in these issues, but like that's all very secondary to, you know, a, a huge upgrade in freedom for comics as a medium. And uh, you know, we'll we'll talk in our next season about you know kind of the change from you know the Silver Age to the Bronze Age and things like that. But you could almost say that this move right here allowed for these things to really happen. You know, because yeah. comics could finally address a broader range of of societal ills i i agree with that dan and and i mean again not to jump ahead into potential topics for season three but you know people like to basically say that the death of gwen stacy was the the trend marked the transition from silver to bronze age and you know it's certainly a, a watershed moment for comics 
But, you know, I think just as compelling of an argument could be made for these three issues as kind of being the turning point in comics uh, in terms of the tone and the themes of, of the stories. So, um, you know, like I said, these are these are big stories and they happen to be good comics, which I, I like to go back to. I, I, I mean, you know, this is it's it's the spy, it's a Spider-Man Green Goblin story primarily uh, in terms of Norman Osborn regaining his memory. And, you know, per our last episode, Dan, not everyone read that spectacular Spider-Man magazine number two. So and they don't even really reference it that much in this in these issues. So um, for a lot of readers, this was the first time Spider-Man fought the Green Goblin since that, you know, phenomenal two-parter in 39 and 40 back, you know, years earlier that, you know, when Ramita's first story basically on the book, um, you know, like in their five minds. years earlier. Yeah. So, I mean, this is like, you know, the return of Norman Osborn to the Green Goblin for a lot of people. Um, and that, that in itself is a, is a watershed moment. I mean, because, you know, this is, this is kind of, I feel starts that acceleration towards establishing Norman as the guy against Spider-Man, you know, like we, we kind of had it when he got his identity, but we never truly saw what the consequences were of Norman knowing Peter's identity because he had amnesia immediately after that battle. But now it was kind of back out there again that he can regain these memories and, and, and strike at the heart of Spider-Man, and it made that character just that much more unpredictable and threatening, which would, of course, later be played out in Amazing Spider-Man number 121. If you've got 2020 hindsight, these issues, you know, which, which we do because we've read everything since, you know, these issues really play out as a sort of um, real uh, uh, setup for a lot of future Spider-Man stories. I mean not just for Harry Osborn as an eventual Green Goblin or Norman Osborn and his actions towards Gwen, but also for, you know, the ultimate reveal of Mary Jane's backstory and all these things. The future writers of this title would mine characterizations and ideas from these stories for, I, I would say, generations. Absolutely. So why, why, why don't we talk a little bit about the comics themselves here, Dan, I mean, just in terms of some of the, the, the key plot beats and story beats, it's certainly in terms of how it frames the drug issue. I mean, it's, it's there throughout. Uh, and they also deal with it just to kind of add a little more, more intrigue to it. They kind of frame the drug issue as also being tied to a racial and class issue, which is accurate, right? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I mean, it's reflecting reality, so um, good, good on them. But um, you know, we're we're kind of dealing with these racial issues again in this book, which we hadn't seen since the the Stone Tablet saga in a lot of ways. So, I mean, I I, I find that very interesting that that was how um, Stanley chose to attack these from a narrative standpoint. Uh, it's also worth noting, just from a technical standpoint, that the art, the pencils on this are are Gil Kane. Um, this kind of he, had, I think had done a couple of issues prior to this on the book, but this kind of marked Gill's beginnings on this book. Although like he and Ramita switched off a lot. I think our conversations with Jerry Conway seem to indicate that Gil Kane sometimes had a hard time setting the story visually. So Ramita would kind of come in and redo a lot of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, his style is so distinctly different than, uh, you know, John Ramita seniors. I mean, although, 
still operating within the same range. What what I find so interesting about these stories is like there's a kind of a, a heightened psychological tension in this story, not only because you know, the goblin and his whole amnesia angle and, and the will he, won't he remember stuff, and, you know, but also the kind of, you know, drugs and everything involving that and Harry's kind of breakdown. But his panels are kind of very um, densely packed. You know, there's stuff in the foreground, middle ground, and background of these images in a way that I don't think Romina's kind of more clean, open panels and 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 rounded characters ever really reflected people's faces in this are just like worn there are like lines of exhaustion on these characters faces yeah these are very avaricious characters in terms of their their physical features there's there's an sat word for you and i and i think it works really well in the context of the story especially when ramita starts doing some of these kind of like trippy uh sideways i mean there's the there's the 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 floating heads of gil kane which kind of you know the more gil kane you would read in spider-man and elsewhere is kind of a thing of his <laughs> um, you know there's floating heads of guilt and then there's the floating heads of gil kane uh which we get a lot here like when when harry pops pills and things like that but it works because it's kind of meant it's designed to be trippy and off-putting and kind of spacey and and unsettling unlike like you said ramita who um his forte was drawing characters that looked pretty <laughs> you know pretty wouldn't work in this story it kind of bridges the gap between ramita and dicko in many ways you know you've got these very panel heavy pages uh which is very different than ramita seniors and also one of the things i thought was so interesting is that like the lettering is very different in this issue in the way that like the bubbles like bleed across images and like really compress the characters into panels in the way that Ramita often wouldn't probably because his pages weren't as packed, but like you'll see like like balloons just like stretch across multiple panels and, and that's certainly unique to, you know, Kane's kind of style. Definitely. So in terms of the drug use in these comics, um again just kind of playing up the idea that this is a Spider-Man story first and a drug story second in my mind. Like, you know, the, the, the drugs being abused, it's, it's vague. It's, it's kind of just the, the general, these are drugs. Yeah. <laughs> we don't, we don't, they're not, they're not smoking pot or, you know, they're taking pills. Right. That's um, the most specific we get is just vague pills. Um, you know, there, there, there's, there's a, a drug dealer that kind of looks like, um, I don't know, he looks like a mobster with a mustache, which is kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> like, it, come like here, a, kid. A, a very high end, yeah. Like he would sell you like a, a a lollipop, like a fancy lollipop, more likely than yeah. than drugs. With so this big mustache he's an, he's an and hat. Grinder. He's an organ grinder who sells drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, which is really interesting, at least to me, in a book that like starts off really leaning into the racial element of drugs, right? Like the the clear point Stan is seeming to make is that like drugs affect, you know, the black community predominantly, but also can impact rich people as well. And so you've got this rich looking drug dealer, this organ grinder, if you will, you know, selling drugs to Harry and he's very influenced by it. And, uh, you know, I thought that was a really interesting message to kind of get across. I think it kind of 
does short shrift to how impactful drugs were on the black community, but it it is taking an angle nevertheless. Yeah. And, and I think Carrie is the perfect subject to, to build a story like this around. I mean, like, you know, up until this point, Harry is kind of pitched as almost like the anti-Peter. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's obviously Peter's age. Um, he's a little awkward and, and probably would be an outcast except for the fact that he has money. Uh, so that gives him social standing and popularity, whether it's warranted or not. Uh, and thus when he becomes rejected in the story by Mary Jane, uh, it, it, you know, rather kind of like the whole power and responsibility thing rather than, then I don't want to say being responsible, I guess rather than making the responsible choice and how to deal with his problems, he turns to drugs. And I, I, I feel that just kind of makes sense for, uh, the character. Like he, he, he's clearly a, a weaker version of Peter in terms of character and, and, and moral fiber. Um, not that he's a bad person, but, um, he, he is more easily willed into a bad decision. I think is probably the best way to put it. Right. Yeah, and it comes to a great head in this story where he like confronts Peter about Mary Jane in a scene that would kind of be adapted for the first Spider-Man movie, where we very much got a jealous Harry, and you know that would ultimately be his demise to become the Green Goblin in the first series of Spider-Man movies. Uh, and I, I think it's really interesting that that kind of shows up here, and with the power of twenty twenty hindsight. This is kind of the beginning of Harry's undoing. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, this, this whole idea of Harry dealing with addiction and having a relapse, I mean, it would ultimately be the setup, you know, when we talked earlier about mining these stories, I mean, it would be the ultimate setup to what kind of triggers uh, Norman's episode in the Death of Gwen Stacy storyline, um, you know, because Harry gets hospitalized again for for kind of falling off the wagon or on the wagon or sorry, now I'm quoting Seinfeld. Uh, (laughs) um, Something I I always like to kind of poke fun at with these issues is the fashion. Oh boy. Is this this worse than the tank top or, or or is the tank top still the worst Peter Parker outfit? Are you talking about the JRJR tank top from the Stern era or I was um, thinking about that Or, or even McFarlane does it, I believe as well. Oh, that's true. That's right. I I kind of think this is worse because, like, I mean, the tank top is kind of silly and frivolous, but there's a there's a time uh, a timelessness to it. This is so 1971. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to describe it? Yeah, I mean, none of these characters are ever seen in the comics wearing stuff like this again. I mean, you got Peter with big gold chains and and multicolor uh vertically striped shirts and and vests that look like i mean they have it's almost like a furry vest he's wearing at one point i mean it's pretty hideous and i didn't i never realized that peter was such a fashion plate we get a lot of uh big character development for mary jane in this story which who she had been kind of you know i wouldn't say a background character but she didn't have a lot of big changes going on for her i guess for a little while up to this point. And here we get to see a couple of interesting facets about her. We get to see her perform and really mm-hmm. kind of push that actress angle uh, for Mary Jane in a, in a really, um, I guess, prominent way. And, and it makes sense that she would kind of come back into the forefront because this is where Peter is kind of 
he's just gotten back from London and trying to see Gwen Stacy there and kind of failing. So he's kind of single again for the first time in a while. You know, so suddenly Mary Jane is more prominent in the book. So not only is she acting in this, but she's also kind of clinging on to Peter's arm, like you we were saying, and pissing off Harry Osborne. Um, but you get this kind of interesting look at our character as somebody who truly is scared of commitment, at, you know, and is really just kind of looking to be her own. You could maybe call her a feminist, but the book seems to brush past the feminist thing and really be like she's kind of a backstabber in, in a way that she she doesn't respect her relationship with Harry. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if this was a book written today, it would take on a more feminist tone. But this being a bunch of older white guys writing a female character like that, I think I actually feel they kind of. I mean, I see what you're saying in terms of the character and, and, and how some of the characterization here would be fueled for, for later, I would, I would say, better, more elegantly stated stories involving Mary Jane. But in a lot of ways here, I, 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 I kind of feel uncomfortable reading some of MJ stuff here because I feel like in a lot of ways she's almost painted as a villain here. Like it's, you know, like her... You know, she's basically making a play for Peter now that Gwen's out of the picture. I mean, you know, the the, the corpse is barely uh, cold at this point, I guess. <laughs> Although she's not dead, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, like, <laughs> she she's just, like, not quite dead. No, and and just dumping all over Harry, and you know, yeah, there are elements of that kind of female empowerment here, but I don't feel this is ultimately fueled by female empowerment, and 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 it's and Peter kind of like turns around and fairly or unfairly blames MJ for Harry going into drugs. Like, you know, you were such an ass to him and look what happened to him. And it, it's like I said, it's, it's just uncomfortable. I think it's the best word I can use describing the interaction here. It's like, I read this and I'm like, Ugh, you know, like this, this, this needed a little lighter touch and a little more elegance. And instead it just kind of feels like let's just dump on the woman for screwing everything up. Yeah, and it's particularly ill-defined, too, because, you know, up until this point in the pages of this comic, the characters have kind of all been, like, casually dating each other, you know, in, in a way that I'm pretty, I don't really think exists in dating culture today. It's like, I'm dating him tonight, and I'm dating you tomorrow night. And so you can't really pin down whether it's that Harry is, like, upset in an unjust way, but the book kind of paints it that way, that they were... They get something a little more official. At least Harry thought so, and maybe Mary Jane didn't. There, she has a line. She says, "I'm not anybody's woman. I'm my own woman." And, and you know, it's it's an interesting thing to see. You know, kind of like I don't know if this is the time of like second wave feminism, but you you can kind of read a bunch of different things into it. And I don't know if we're reading much into it, just being male creators. But that. There's a, something interesting going on here with the character that would, again, ultimately be followed up on in the Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends run, as we've discussed on the podcast multiple times. Right. And probably we'll discuss at length in a future season. These topics are never old. No, no, no. Yeah. So it's, it's like I said, that to me is a little uncomfortable. But then, you know, we get some some interesting stuff, obviously, with Norman Osborn here. I mean, I feel like this is the true, really true uh, first time in the comics, we get this idea of like the goblin and or Osborne having different layers throughout the city. I mean, what initially triggers his episode here is he's at the play that where MJ is performing, and I guess like what backstage is one of his hideouts where he keeps his stuff. 
Well, they're very sure to tell you that he bought the theater at the beginning of the the story, so that it's not just some random theater he decided to put the goblin costume in. Like um, to do. <laughs> somebody's just opening the janitor closet and is like, "What is going on?" Well, I guess I'm gonna die now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, and that and that would obviously play out again in in 121. I mean, you know, I'm sure if we had Jerry Conway back on again. We, we we could if we if he if we want him to talk about 121 again i mean we, he would probably mention that he mined a lot of the elements from this story to kind of fuel the setup of that one because i feel like they really do play into each other uh ultimately via the power of hindsight there's another element to this story that he he mined that i i particularly liked is that there's a sequence in i think issue 97 where peter contemplates revealing his identity to Aunt May because she's getting more hip, um, which is kind of all part of this whole, like, making Aunt May a bit of a younger character as she would slowly become over the years, or at least less heart attack prone. And because right. uh, I think they were like, we're done mining this story. Uh, we've done it all for all it's worth. But, um, you know, Peter toys with the idea of how much easier his life would be, you know, if he could just tell Gwen and Aunt May now that Aunt May, you know, was, is a little more cool. And, and it's, it's interesting to look at this in the light of what would come because at that time, you know, his biggest fear wasn't, I mean, is he had a slight fear of Norman knowing his identity, but he wasn't really couching it through the prism of how that would affect the people he loved. Um, you know, his biggest fear was just Aunt May finding out and, and the heart attack of it. So, you can see the pieces lining up to have his entire perspective about why he keeps his secret identity so near and dear to him kind of in the, in the pages of this issue. Yeah. I feel like this comic should like be prefaced with a sign that says it's been this many issues without Aunt May having a heart attack. (laughs) I mean, definitely turning over a new leaf for that character, you know, kind of coming on the heels of um, a few issues earlier, like this comic, I, I also like a lot of the Robbie and Jonah interplay in this issue. Like, I think this is like one of those good storylines where Jonah becomes less of a caricature and more of a complex character in terms of how he, his approach. Cause you know, you know, basically at one point when, when Harry's admitted into the hospital, Jonah asks, Robbie, like, well, what's the story here? And Robbie lays it out that this, that drug abuse is a, is a problem for everybody. It's not just relegated to, you know, poor communities and ghettos and whatnot. And Jonah is like, then write that story, even though the, the, obviously the implication is with Norman Osborn being this powerful business, businessman that putting a story like that in the paper would embarrass him and his family and his legacy. So, yeah, um, and he's also a friend of Jonah's. Exactly. They're from the Gentleman's Club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Season one, people. Again, like like you were saying, I mean, like we have stuff with MJ, we have stuff with Aunt May, we have stuff with Harry, we got stuff with Jonah and Robbie. Norman is just a maniac. Spider-Man steers him with his thighs on the glider, which I still don't understand the physics of that. Uh, <laughs> a, lot of, a, lot, a lot of thigh steering in this comic, right? Even on the cover. Yeah. <laughs> It's like Spidey just jumps on there and and that glider just follows his thighs. <laughs> and ultimately Spider-Man would use those thighs to glide uh, Norman to Harry's uh, hospital room and force him to see his son 
knocked out and and dealing with addict, you know, I, I guess an overdose, and it would trigger Norman to kind of collapse and and forget his goblin persona again for another twenty plus issues. There you have it, the end of the story, and you know Harry would kind of wrestle with this, you know, again for another 20 issues or so. Have we seen Harry dip back into drug use other than just the goblin stuff anytime since then? No, but I mean, obviously all of his relapses into becoming like the second goblin, I feel were fueled by drug abuse. Right. I mean, that's, yeah. And certainly like the child within and stuff like that. But, um, no, I don't, I, I, like, I, I think in the, since, since his return from the dead, in Brand New Day, I don't feel like we've had any Harry might be using again type stories. Yeah, although we certainly like flirted with saying there's something up with Harry. Although it seems certain now after 800 that there was nothing really untoward going on with Harry Osborn. Right. Yet. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's um, comics. So, uh, Mark, where did this you know story go? You hinted at what the fallout was. What What, you know... This story's great. We really like this book, but what did happen ultimately? Right. Well, um, like I said, I mean, it, it basically between Marvel defying the the code, the the authority, and this comics being carried and distributed and sold regardless, uh, that that kind of um, neutered the authority. Um, but beyond that, like the, the this Marvel won the PR battle, which is you know, here we are almost 50 years later, and that's still still important. They won the news cycle, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, right. As a result, I mean, basically the CCA completely backed down in terms of um, what it would allow because it, it didn't matter. Like, it, like Marvel opened the door saying, hey, guy, hey, DC, hey, other comic book companies, you know, if you do something <clears throat> that's tasteful and um, accurate, and realistic and kind of deals with legitimate issues, you can um, not really pay consequences for it. I mean, Marvel Marvel benefited from this. They didn't have consequences. So, you know, like almost immediately after these issues were published, I mean, you know, obviously a lot of comics started dealing with these more adult themes. Uh, Marvel, like, immediately started making new monster characters because like the whole occult thing was kind of was was lax as a result from this so i mean was it three issues after this we had the introduction of morbius the living vampire and then soon after that marvel's publishing books like tomb of dracula werewolf by night uh other books like that we have man you know uh jameson's kid becomes man wolf again these were all things that were essentially outlawed by the comic authority prior to this um, but then in terms of more heavy stuff, and then uh, a few months after these issues were published in, in by Marvel, the Distinguished Competition uh, put forward probably one of the most important stories of, the, of this era, which was uh, from the Green Arrow, Green Lantern books, and that story is called Snowbirds Don't Fly, which addresses the Green Arrow's ward uh, becoming addicted to heroin. Um, and they, they mention heroin plain as day in the book. Uh, and I mean, this is, I mean, that's considered just a really big story for comics, uh, in terms of just, you know, again, here in Spider-Man, the drug use is kind of general and vague. It's pills, but you know, you actually see in this book, you know, 
the ward wrapping his arm with a belt and getting ready to do heroin. So it's, 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 it was heavy stuff. I mean, you know, and, and, you know, you think back to books like Frank Miller's Daredevil and, and, you know, later, like some of the stuff with Batman, like that kind of, you know, what we like to say is dark and gritty. I mean, this is, this is what led to that. And Marvel would eventually abandon the CCA altogether in 2001 and um, in, in 2010, only three people were still uh, following it. That was DC Comics, Archie Comics, and Bongo Comics. Bongo left them in 2010, later that year, and then DC and Archie left in January of 2011. So basically nobody was using it anymore, and it still exists, I guess, but it's pretty much defunct, and nobody bothers using it. So like, it would have a life for another... 30 years with Marvel, but you know, it would, it would be greatly reduced by, uh, by these books as we've been saying. Yeah, absolutely. So, and again, it's probably so that we could talk to Jerry about, uh, if we have Mon again, but the monster monster magazine thing, I mean, that became a, another big marketing thing for Marvel. So beyond the serious stuff that we were just talking about, I mean, like these books, like tomb of Dracula, werewolf by night. I mean, th- th- these became big, big selling points for Marvel and, and still are to a degree, like certainly like Jerry Conway's carnage uh, leaned heavily on these kind of seventies monster books. Uh, You know, he would admit to that. Um, And obviously Morbius, I don't, you know, it's funny. I I don't always think of Morbius as an important supporting character in the Spider-Man universe, but I know like, certainly like he played a big part, like in the nineties cartoon, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's, there is a, a fandom there and kind of a following. Uh, and that's because of this, this three-parter story that, that, that Marvel was able to go forward with that. I mean, these, these are important characters in the Marvel uh, lexicon and in the mythology, and they were able to do that. Um, and if we ever get Roy Thomas on the show, I'm sure he would have a lot to say about that as well. Yeah, it's funny, you know, you mentioned Morbius and like Man Wolf. I, I doubt these characters would really exist in the pages of Spider Man if it wasn't for these books, not just for overturning the CCA, but because once it was kind of overturned, there was like a rush to include characters like that in this book. And so like even if it didn't really make a ton of sense, like John Jameson becoming a werewolf, I mean it was definitely influenced by a sudden desire to stretch their muscles you know in in flexor muscles in this regard yeah they had they had ips to copyright like let's do it you know like <laughs> <laughs> and it's also funny you mentioned the animated series because there was a certain bit of uh you know cca kind of censorship of that series i know john semper jr would say it wasn't censored but you know morbius wasn't allowed to be like a conventional vampire so they added like suckers to his hand so that he could drain the life from people instead of blood. And I always found the suckers on the hands to be even more disturbing than, <laughs> than say like biting into someone's neck. I mean, they were kind of like Lovecraftian and grotesque, but uh, yeah, c- certainly an interesting time in, in the history of comics and the pages of amazing Spider-Man. Definitely. So you have anything else to add about these comics or the CCA, Dan? Good riddance. <laughs> right I am on. not. I am not for decency in comics. I'll say that comics I should can't. be allowed to go anywhere, uh, as far as I'm concerned. That's the joy of comics. 
Dan, uh, your, your, your takes are like your body. They're hot, baby. <laughs> well, thanks, Mark, for, uh, for that compliment. And thanks to you, listeners at home, for joining us for our eighth episode of our second season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. So, Dan, our next episode uh, is going to be out a few weeks-ish. What's the title of that show going to be? Yeah, it's going to be called Reintroducing Death. Uh, It's our discussion of Amazing Spider-Man number 90, also known as And Death Shall Come, which is also kind of typically known as The Death of Captain Stacy. So, yes, we're going to be talking about George Stacy's fateful meeting with a bunch of rubble, a story we've never really actually discussed in any depth on the show, which is kind of odd to say, considering it's such a popular story in the pages of Spider-Man. Yeah, we might have dropped the ball on that one, Dan, especially with the essentials. Whoops. And we're also going to use this discussion to that story to talk about death in Spider-Man comics in general and how it paved the way forward for this series. You know, I guess prior to this, we just had Uncle Ben dying in terms of notable good guy deaths. So why not talk about more of them? Death is a part of life, Dan. Yeah. I will say, though, that I'm going to be heading out on my much-delayed honeymoon with my wife. So I may be delivering a fill-in episode during that week that includes all of my thoughts about the Spider-Man PS4 game that I was able to play during E3 just the other day. So potentially look forward to that discussion instead, just in case Mark and I aren't able to get this thing done in time. Yeah, Dan, I'm very jealous that you got to play that game. I'm jealous that you have a PlayStation and I don't. I might have to just move out to L.A. to play that game with you. Sounds fair. Uh, We'll just have to kick my wife out after the honeymoon and just play PlayStation all the time. Yeah, and I'll just have to abandon my family, but that's okay. That sounds good. Yeah, (laughs) works for everyone. Yeah. So, Mark, what, what else we got coming down the line? Well, yeah, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out uh, our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week for our special review of Amazing Spider-Man number 800. Uh, And then eventually at some point upon its release, Amazing Spider-Man number 801 as well. Uh, And then uh, there'll probably be a review roundup episode discussing all Amaze Beep title books. Uh, And of course, Dan, anyone for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, can get access to all of this exclusive content. Uh, Also, our Swarm V-Book reviews, extended interviews, mailbags, and more. And then for our premium subscribers, for $10 or more a month, you will get access to some awesome commission artwork, this time from Alex Saviak, um, who we're working on getting something uh, delivered hopefully soon to you all. So that's exciting as well. And I'm going to throw in, for all people that have subscribed up to this point, a copy of the Daily Bugle. That was given out at E3, this kind of rare collector's item about the Spider-Man game. So if you were looking to get your hands on a Daily Bugle, I'll toss in a little bit of a freebie there. Although I think I'm all out of copies for anybody trying to jump on the bandwagon now. Speaking of hopping on a bandwagon, be sure to check out some of our other shows like The Ultimate Spin as they wrap up the end of Spider-Gwen or even The Untold Talks of Spider-Man where they recently interviewed J.M. DeMatteis about The Child Within. Plus, we've also got the amazing Spider-Slack community for you to join. You can check out this episode's description for a link to join our Spider-Man talking community. Mark, I hear rumor that you were on a podcast recently that I was also on recently. Uh, yeah, well, um, I think your episode will probably be 
seeing the light of day more, uh, much more immediately than mine. But yeah, I, I recorded with the folks from uh, Spider-Man Minute, who, uh, if you're unfamiliar, they discuss uh, the Spider-Man movies one minute at a time. I, I got to talk about three minutes of Spider-Man 2 uh, over the course of three episodes uh, that I believe will be out sometime in August. Uh, very exciting uh, part of the movie, too, that one of my favorite parts of this movie. So um, lucky me that, I, that, that those were my minutes. So if you thought we were exhaustive about a topic, these guys are talking about these <laughs> movies one minute at a time. We've got another kind of giveaway for everybody out there. If you were one of those people that couldn't get your hands on Amazing Spider-Man number 800 and want a digital copy of it, Mark and I are going to be giving away some digital copies of that $10 book. Or if you have like a friend you want to give a, 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 a copy to, to check it out um, as we end Dan Slot's run – if you leave us a review on iTunes and tweet us a picture of you typing in that review into the review field, just take a screenshot of it and send it to Mark or I on Twitter. We will send you one of our digital codes for that book. So, uh, hey, that's a $10 book. That's not nothing. Indeed. That's like, I mean, free money, man. Yeah. So, uh, Mark, if people wanted to tweet those things at you or get in contact with you or follow you anywhere, where would they do so on the Internet? Uh, well, of course, you can find me on Twitter at Chasing ASM Blog. You can find me on Chasing Amazing Blog and uh, Amazing Spider Talk. And uh, you can get my book, 100 Things Spider Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Dan, how about you? A lot of the same places, Mark. AmazingSpiderTalk.com. We'll have our final review of Dan Slott's run, 801. I don't know which one of us is handling that, Mark. It might be me if you're honeymooning, Dan. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure my wife would not be happy about me writing a review of the Spider-Man comic on our honeymoon. Editorial decision-making on air. This is what it's come to, folks. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So look forward to that on AmazingSpiderTalk.com. And otherwise, you can reach out to me on Twitter at, at @supspidertalk. Mark, we always want to make sure that we remember the oldies, the classics, and that most classic of phrases that we like to end our show on. I'm going to give you the duties of, uh, I guess, uh, chanting it. Would you say that this mantra has been approved by the Comic Code Authority, Dan? I, I, think, I think they would approve. All right. Well, with their approval, let me just say, with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Don't, don't miss the next installment.